0: It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here.
1: Some breaking news to share with you this morning, M&A related.
0: There's good activism.
1: I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. This is such a game changer.
0: Hello and welcome to According to Sources for the week of August 13th, 2018. I'm Mike Samuels of Broom Street Capital, your host. This is a podcast that devotes its time to three topics, mergers and acquisitions, event-driven trading, and the sources that cover and surround them. For 13 years, Whitney Tilson hosted the Value Investing Congress, a forum for activist longs and shorts to present their best ideas. However, in 2015, it was Tilson's own short in Lumber Liquidators that not only landed him nationwide attention, but landed the story on 60 Minutes. Who tipped him off? How much did he profit? What happened to his fund from there? What happened to his source? I found all of this out during our interview last week. The last time I saw you was at uh, a short-selling conference. It was called The Art and Pain and Opportunity of Short-Selling. He had 22 speakers all of which brought in either uh, their experience uh, in short-selling or an idea. What would you say was the highlight of that for you?
1: Uh, Seeing one of my former students, uh, Gabriel Grego, uh, pitch Foley Foley, a Mm. uh, global retailer fashion company uh, with uh, claimed uh, well over a billion dollars worth of sales, uh, happened to be based out of Athens, Greece, and traded on the Athens Stock Exchange. So it was a little obscure. But uh, this one guy running $20 million uh, did a global research effort, discovered that the company was a total fraud. Um, It actually, not a total fraud in the sense that there really was a company, it really did have some stores, Mm -hmm. but he actually went out and did the research uh, on their website. They claimed to have something over 700 stores and he discovered that there were actually fewer than 300. and uh, he exposed this at our conference. Um, The stock plunged. uh, There's a trading limit uh, of down 30% on the Athens Stock Exchange. So it plunged uh, 30% two consecutive days, and within two weeks, um, the stock was delisted uh, as Greek uh, regulators uh, investigated and discovered that uh, Gabriel's work was um, 100% correct. So Uh, That was really the, uh, you know, that's the dream of any short seller is to discover a total fraud, uh, bring it to the public's attention. And two weeks later, the stock's at zero, never trades again. One of the things that I I saw
0: in an interview that you did right before that conference. And one thing that you said regarding uh, short selling uh, was it's a great feeling to outwit the herd. Yes. Okay. Um, And so one of the common denominators at that conference amongst the 400 people or so that were there was it seemed just about everyone was short Tesla.
1: You know, it's interesting. I thought one of the most uh, um, certainly interesting presentations uh, was Mark Spiegel's uh, uh, takedown of Tesla. And uh, so far, that's not working. Well, Um, I guess
0: what I'm saying is when you have so many people short Tesla, you wonder who's the herd, the longs or the shorts?
1: Yes. Uh, well, look, given uh, Tesla's, uh, where Tesla's stock is and the company's valuation, the herd is clearly bullish on Tesla, a company that has uh, has never had a profitable quarter in its existence, yet still has, what, $60, $70 billion market cap. I still follow it. It was my worst short ever back in 2013. Um, I was betting uh, that they were going to have production hiccups and, uh, and quality issues, like Which many new did. companies do. But the Model S turned out to be a pretty much a home-run Product and that really saved the company, and uh, I was too slow to recognize that, and uh, and really got burned on the short side. And I've been warning all of my friends ever since for about the past five years that Tesla is a bad short. Um, you, it, it has every red flag that short sellers look for, mm-hmm. uh, but um, the problem with shorting story stocks, stocks that aren't valued on any multiple of revenues or certainly earnings. Um, is that there's no price at which they can't trade. Um, And Tesla has a hell of a story. There's no no question there's an incredible story there, right? Tesla isn't a one-story stock. It's a half-dozen-story stock. Um, And until that story cracks, until something changes the perceptions of the people who are bought into that story, uh, this stock isn't going down. Uh, I spoke to someone recently, and he said to me, wouldn't it just be a lot easier to short it when it's already gone down 50%? See, that's the thing. Um, we teach now a full-day seminar or a three-day webinar. Uh, either way, a seven-and-a-half-hour of content yeah. program. Specifically, uh, uh, we call it an advanced seminar on short-selling, trying to capture and teach young people the lessons that my partner Glenn and I learned over 15 years of short-selling. And uh, one of the key messages that we uh, tell our students is don't try to be a hero. You don't need to nail the top uh, of a of a high growth or right. story stock. Be patient. If you think that there is uh, there are rough seas ahead for this company, you don't have to short it when the skies are blue and the sea is calm and the company's cranking things out. Wait until not just there's a storm on the distant horizon. Wait until the storm's actually there. So you don't have to be a hero and short it on the way up. Short it when it's down 20, 30, even 50%. And there's often a lot more room uh, on the downside. If you're right, the story is broken. No question. Um, I'm thinking of Valiant you know all you had to do was wait for the catalyst and Valiant as opposed to trading it at 97% 97% peak to trough you know it's funny Charlie Munger tried to warn all of them I was in the front row um, in February uh, 2015 uh, when Charlie Munger just ripped Valiant. And this was when Valiant was on the way up. Just the sewer um, comment? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, calling Valiant a sewer is an insult to sewage. Right. Uh, and, uh, and he compared it to uh, one of the classic scammy roll-ups of the 1960s, ITT under Harold Janine, and he said, "This time it's worse. It's immoral." He called right. it immoral because Valiant, of course, it wasn't just sort of a stock market promotion and all, but it was immoral. Uh, unlike ITT, which actually wasn't harming s- sick people, um, the business model of Valiant was buying older products and then jacking the price through the roof. So uh,
0: you said that was February of two thousand fifteen. Right. And the stock had an, another in August. Yeah. Yet another um, big deal happened in February of two thousand and fifteen. Uh, I remember uh, I was on that Lumber Liquidators call when the CEO uh, politely mentioned during Q&A that they were going to be the subject of a 60 minutes segment that coming Sunday. And when I mentioned that story to people, they they instantly say, wow, how much time did you have to short it? And the thing about it was a lot of people initially yawned at that. And the reason that they yawned was this clearly was not a company that had been a choir boy before this. They had gotten into trouble previously. So just kind of walk me through, um, and it wasn't until the CEO said, well, just so you know, I stand by the safety of the wood. And as we know, there was illegal uh, levels of formaldehyde in the wood, and eventually it got on 60 Minutes. And just tell me about A, how did you come across that information? And B, how do you get that on 60 Minutes?
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was my greatest short ever. And like all of your greatest investments and all of your worst investments, um, it requires what Charlie Munger calls Lollapalooza effects. In other words, there were a lot of factors that all came together in just the right way to create uh, an, an enormous outlier experience. In mm-hmm. this case, uh, one of the best shorts ever. Uh, you know, the stock went from a 115 to 8 at the bottom. Um, so what happened, uh, very interestingly was, you know, I was running a pretty big short book, maybe 50 stocks. Um, and I know a lot of other short sellers, some of whom I've never even met personally. I just know them via email. They're on my email mm-hmm. list. And one guy just sent the, how did I learn about it? I never even heard of the company, never done the work on it until one of those guys to this day. I've never met him, but he's uh, runs a small fund out on the West coast. Knew okay. He was sort of a smart guy. And he sent me an email saying, Whitney, take a look at LL. You'll like it. The story that an environmental group had yep. exposed was that Um, Lumber liquidators uh, that the mills that they bought from in China were buying illegally harvested hardwoods in Siberia that were being harvested by the Russian mob, uh, the last home of the Siberian tiger, you know, the Russian mob was clear cutting uh, these valuable hardwood trees. Um, Especially endangered species were there, it was protected, exactly. and they went in anyway. Exactly. That's what the Lacey Act is meant to combat. It's right. an Endangered Species uh, Protection Act.
0: The market shrugs off the
1: raid and the illegal wood. Yes. How do you get to the the real story? Well, what's interesting is um, it's it's sort of a long story, and I'll try and tell it as briefly as I can. But I figured if they were cheating in hardwoods, which is only 3 to 5% of their revenues— that would not by itself explain a doubling of the company's operating margin from 6% to 12 or 13%. Right. Um, it just mathematically couldn't, couldn't be. Um, but I figured uh, there's probably a cockroach theory here, right? If, if the company is willing to cheat and cut corners in one area, they're probably doing so in other areas. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when 50% of their product is being sourced in China, there's all sorts of opportunity to cheat. Uh, so I figured they probably had problems elsewhere. Um, that that would explain the the inexplicable doubling of margins, but I didn't know where, and I'm a one-person operation. So Mm -hmm. I figured, well, why not go public with it, and then maybe somebody somewhere might reach out to me with what's really going on. I gave a little six-minute pitch on what was going on, and the stock dropped 12% the next day. It was a very effective pitch, but I still didn't have the poisoning their customers with formaldehyde laminate um, story. Um, and, um, And then I waited. And nothing happened. And it took probably five, six months later into the spring of 2014 that finally somebody reached out to me. And to this day, neither I nor 60 Minutes has ever identified our source. But let's just say it was someone who was in the industry um, producing, manufacturing flooring in China. Um, who had tried to sell to Lumber Liquidators and couldn't because he couldn't hit their price because they were buying from other Chinese mills at a much lower price. And he couldn't figure out why because he felt like he ran a very efficient factory. Is this an American in China? um, Yes. Okay. Um... Uh, but was not running his own company. He was working for somebody else, but uh, okay. he was he was working for a legitimate company, and he was competing against uh, some of the smaller Chinese mills. And so he was trying to sell to lumber liquidators. And, he, he, and he's and, getting and some, undercut. And some, some lumber liquidators said, you know, we'd love to buy from you, uh, but you got to hit this price. And it was a price well below what his costs were, even at no margin to him. Uh, they were they were uh, and they weren't bluffing. They were actually buying laminate flooring, which accounts for about twenty percent of lumber liquidators' uh, sales. They were buying it at ten percent below his cost, and he went back and he said, "You know what am I missing here? Why are my costs, um, you know, higher than the fully loaded price that they're actually buying at?" And then one of his Chinese friends clued him in. Oh well, as long as you uh, don't worry about the environmental laws. Um, and you use a lot of formaldehyde in your factory. Um, formaldehyde is uh, is a chemical that's used uh, to produce laminate, um, and it's very low cost, and it dries super quickly. So it means you can run your machines a lot faster, and you can drop your costs substantially. Yep. The only downside to it is, is it's a known carcinogen, and above a certain level, it's illegal. So, um, But again, there are are plenty of other countries in the world that don't have formaldehyde uh, emission standards. So the Chinese factories are perfectly happy to produce the cheapo formaldehyde-laden laminate for certain customers in other countries. Um, uh, Or you can pay them 10, 15% more and they'll make you what's called CARB compliant. California Air Resource Board is sort of the standard that everyone adheres to in the United States, even though technically it's only a California standard. Um, so, uh, so that's what he, that's what he discovered. He discovered that lumber liquidators was buying non carb compliant laminate flooring from these Chinese mills, um, and bringing it in the United States and selling it to American customers. Claiming that it was carb compliant. Exactly. Labeling it carb compliant. So the story, he gave me this story and he said, Whitney, you don't have to believe me just hire. There are plenty of labs that test for formaldehyde emissions. There's a certain standard way of doing the testing. Uh, go hire a lab. Uh, and go test uh, Just go, go Have the lab You don't do it yourself There has to be A chain of custody yeah. The lab Actually goes to Lumber Liquidator stores And they buy uh, A selection of Lumber liquidators products Chinese made Laminate I had told them What to look for And what to buy And what yeah. to test um, And I spent 5,000 bucks And they tested Three types of Lumber liquidators flooring And sure enough It came in uh, Loaded with formaldehyde uh, two, to, two to six times higher Than the carb standard So at that point, uh, I I had very good reason to believe that this was a widespread problem, that the story my source had given me was correct. Um, And uh, so then I thought, okay, what do I do with this? I've Mm -hmm. discovered some massively important piece of information here. Um, And obviously, I could have put it out on my blog. I could have spoken at another conference. I could have tried to disseminate it myself. But um, I've been a longtime fan of 60 Minutes, and I had actually been on the show back in 2008 on a piece um, uh, that won an Emmy about the housing crisis. So Mm -hmm. I had some relationships over there. So I thought to myself, what a great story for 60 Minutes. You know, an American company, a well-known American company doing over a billion dollars in revenues, is buying dangerous chemical uh, carcinogen-laced, you know, product in China— and then uh, selling it to unsuspecting American families and poisoning uh, poisoning them and especially their children. I brought the story to 60 Minutes. Uh, I showed them my test results. I introduced them to my source, and uh, I was right. They thought it was a great story, um, and uh, they went off for five months uh, and did. And I told them uh, I knew if 60 Minutes went public with this story, that the company might well sue us, sue me, sue 60 Minutes. Um, I might have all my trading records investigated. Uh, I've been a short seller long enough to know the ways that companies can retaliate against even uh, legitimate critics. And so I just out of curiosity, did they what do you think was in it for the source? Nothing. He was just pissed. And he, he was he was angry. Um, so he didn't get any sort of whistleblower money out of this. No, he was never short the stock, to my knowledge. In fact, he took a great deal of risk in doing this because he's still in the industry. Yeah, you know, he still does business in China. China is produces you know at least fifty percent of the world's flooring. He took a lot of personal risk, um, and I think uh, part of it was that it just irritated him that this company was cheating. Um, And that was harming legitimate companies like his. He was no longer at the company. Um, It didn't really matter. Uh, He had no personal uh, upside to this. Um, And I think there was an element of it is they were not only cheating, it wasn't playing fair, and there was sort of a righteous element to, to it there. Um, but it was also that uh, formaldehyde is dangerous. Um, and for a certain percentage of people, um, it can cause very bad health reactions. Um, and after the 60-minute story went public and I started writing a lot of articles about it, um, uh, you know, a number of people uh, reached out to me and thanked me uh, for exposing this because they told me stories of their terrible health problems that they had soon after they had gotten a lumber liquidators floor installed in their home. Um, and, you know, they had uh, gone had to go to the hospital. I mean, this right. is a relatively rare, a small fraction of people um, that this happens to. But it shouldn't happen to anyone. That's that's why you have these regulations. So. Okay, clearly, you knew that this story was
0: happening long before it was announced by the CEO on that conference call. Yes. What sort of – were there any trading restrictions on you on that?
1: Well, what's interesting is is um, the law, as best I understand it, and there's some gray area here, is you're clearly allowed to trade on your own research. Had I simply taken the story um, and uh, I was going to go pitch it at my own conference or at the Robin Hood conference or something like that, I could have put on as big a short position as I wanted the day before, and then if the stock went down, I could have covered it the next day. Um, That, you are allowed to trade on your own research. Right. When, however, when the media is involved, um, and I'm not the world expert on this, but what I have been told is, is that if you know that there is a story coming out um, that is likely to have to move a stock substantially, and you know roughly the day, day or date, when that story is coming out, you cannot trade around that as soon as you become aware of those two things. The the content of the story that is likely to move the stock and, and, the date. and roughly the date. So I could have shorted massive amounts, uh, and not just shorted the stock, but bought a lot of puts sure. and so forth uh, around the 60-minute story. Um, but I didn't do that uh, for two reasons. Um, one um 60 minutes rightly was very concerned i uh, they didn't even express the concern to me i expressed it to them and i said look when this story airs you will no doubt be accused by the company of doing the bidding of, sh- of the, sh- the short sellers yep. who have fed you a false story um in order to manipulate the price of our stock for their own profit and so i told 60 minutes uh that i have a short position in the stock but that as soon as I give you the story, and this was six months before they actually aired the story, that I would not trade a single share of stock until after the story aired. At that point, I'm free to trade it once the story's public, right? So you, um, you even
0: after the Lumber Liquidator CEO announced that it was coming, you did not feel comfortable shorting more?
1: No, um, because for two reasons. One is, as I had given my word to 60 Minutes that I would not trade the stock while they were working on the story. And, and that was a many over six months. Um, right. Uh, number two is is once the once the um, CEO announced. That The story was coming out and uh, 60 Minutes was starting to run teasers and advertising like they do every week about, hey, coming up this Sunday are the following stories. Right. So it became public information that there was going to be a story coming out about Lumber Liquidators on Sunday, March 1st um, of 2015. And so at that point, I was probably legally um Uh, Constrained Because I I had a very—I didn't know any of the details of what was in the story. Because the other thing I told 60 Minutes is, is while you are working on this story, don't tell me what you're doing. Um, Let's not exchange any emails. Let's have no communication between us. So other than um, a uh, couple-hour window in December where Anderson Cooper interviewed me for the story, I appear in the piece— Uh, they did not tell me um, many of the things that appeared in the story. For example, that there was another group of short sellers out on the West Coast um, uh, working with an environmental group that uh, was suing the company um, and had tested dozens of pieces uh, of lumber liquidators flooring. I had only tested three. Um, They did not tell me that they themselves, independently of that group out there on the West Coast, who I, to this day, have no idea who they are, um, 60 Minutes found another group of short sellers that I didn't even know about, um, that they independently tested a bunch of product on their own. Um, they didn't tell me that they sent hidden cameras into uh, factories that were suppliers of lumber liquidators in China that was the most devastating part amazing. of the story, yeah. where you had the Chinese plant manager saying, have to be honest with you, not carb compliant. <laughs> and I was sitting there watching this on 60 Minutes, um, and it was a Sunday night, and I had actually been skiing that weekend out in, out at uh, Snowbird, so I was on a plane boarding in a plane to fly back uh, to New York City and I was watching the story on my cell phone as it aired live and it was the first time I had any clue of any of this and I was and I was just looking up to the heavens saying you know it does not get any better but in your entire not, career it doesn't you, get better it does right. not get any better if you're a short seller you find a company that's poisoning its customers and you bring it to 60 Minutes, and 60 Minutes does some unbelievable journalism, massively enhancing and improving the story that I had uncovered, and and airs it. It was a dream, and sure enough, the stock dropped 50% or so the next day yeah. on Monday on the open. Um, and interestingly, normally at that point, I would have been out. You know, I, I was shorting the stock up in the 80s, up to the 100. It peaked at 115. Now the 60-minute story is out. The information is out. And the stock's down to $35. And normally I would have been out. And then I got another just unbelievable gift, which is if you had scripted, if I could have scripted for the company a PR strategy and a series of actions that would utterly destroy the company and its reputation and drive the stock down another 75%. That is exactly what Lumber Liquidators proceeded to do. So, for example, if you're the CEO of of Lumber Liquidators and you're on the board of Lumber Liquidators and you see that 60-minute story and you see your own suppliers admitting on camera that they have provided you with non-carb-compliant product that you're selling in your stores that day, that says carb compliant on it. Mm-hmm. What do you do before your stores open the next day on Monday morning? Get rid of all that wood. You stop selling the product. And if you're not sure if 60 Minutes has got the story right, um, uh, you stop selling the product until you figure it out, right? So what did Lumber Liquidators do the next morning? They had a 75% off sale on their laminate flooring. Oh, yeah. And they for the next, I think it was two months, they proceeded to dump every every bit of toxic formaldehyde laden chinese made laminate flooring on their customers
0: at that point your fund was had about what aum
1: little under 100 million
0: and how many basis points did that trade alone, do you think? Well, moved?
1: interestingly, I put on a 3.5% short position um, when I took the story to 60 minutes. Right. And they expressed an indication of doing the story. Now, I didn't know for sure if they were actually going to do it because they still had to go do a lot more research. Um, and they could have done they could have tested a bunch of product and maybe found that most of it was good. Sure. I only tested three pieces of product. So I told them, uh, I promise you I will not trade the stock. Unless until after you air the story, but if you decide not to air the story, you have to tell me because I'm going to take it to the New York Times or right. you know somewhere else. I'm not I'm not committing myself to be permanently locked up if you're not going to run the story, right? Uh, so I put on a 350 BIP short position, which is about as big as I will ever put on, but right. still it's only three and a half percent of your capital, right? Um, and sure enough, this uh, after the story aired, it went down a lot. But I ended up making 450 bips of performance on Lumber Liquidators that year because it, when the story aired and I had already made, let's say, you know, uh, 200 bips on it right. because the stock was down 50%, um, I made another 250 bips on it, shorting it all the way down 10. because as right. the story was playing out, um, I aggressively shorted more on the way down because the company kept. I, I couldn't believe that they were continuing to sell the product, not not just for a day or two after the story. This went on for a couple months. So, and this goes back to your point with the gentleman
0: uh, Gabriel with Folly Folly, and you know when the, these really in-depth shorts that work tremendously, and you had even mentioned it at the at the conference where you're like here's a guy who's doing tremendous work and if you'd like to give some money to his fund if you'd like to invest with him here's a way and yes. here's you you had a tremendous call yes what change for you afterwards and and what do you think you know it feels like every other day we hear about a fund that raises a billion dollars you know what do you think prevented you from getting heaps of money thrown your way after that
1: yeah um the answer is is that my overall performance uh was just poor um for for a multi-year period and even in 2015 where I made 800, uh, the market was up a little bit that year, and I made 800 bips on the short side that year. It was, uh, other than 2008 and 2009, it was really the only period in which I ever made money in 15 years of short selling. Short selling was... Was, is is a brutally difficult uh, endeavor. It's a great way to make a name for yourself um, if you're a smaller emerging manager to do uh, to do super in depth work on any company and then be proven right. But it's especially noteworthy on the short side because a million people are out there pitching long ideas. Um, there's something that just a, that's more uh, unique. Um, well, like you said, it's, it's unusual it's great to outwit the crowd.
0: My thanks again to Whitney Tilson. Later this week, I'll be posting part two of this long-form interview in which we discuss Bill Ackman, David Einhorn, Allergan, Valiant, and what the future holds for these two controversial fund managers. That's it for According to Sources for the week of August 13th. I will see you next week.